Greetings, I'm Ken Navarro and welcome to my podcast. I've released a new album. It's called Music for Guitar and Orchestra. It was released internationally on September 21st and I'm doing a series of podcasts to celebrate the release of this special album. So I'm speaking with different folks who had a lot to do with the final realization of the recording of this new music of mine. Today, I'm going to speak with harpist Lori Andrews. Now, Lori is somebody that I knew a little bit when I lived in L.A. back in the 1980s. In fact, we even did a gig or two together. And Lori just stood out, even among all the great musicians that I met and performed with in Los Angeles, because she was just a brilliant harpist. And on top of that, she was a jazz harpist, which put her in a rarefied area, um, especially as far as I was concerned, because while the harp completely has the ability to function in a jazz group like a keyboardist, there aren't very many of harpists that I've ever run across who know how to do that. Well, Lori does, and she's got great feel to go with it. So I knew that she was going to be the right person to play harp on six of the songs on this new album, Music for Guitar and Orchestra, because not only could she read and play anything I put in front of her, she was going to play it with the feeling and the attitude of a jazz musician, which is what I was really looking for, because the harp functions in this music uh, very much as a partner at times to either my guitar or the strings or even just its own part that sort of is like a keyboardist, a pianist in a jazz group. But before we meet Lori, let me just tell you a little bit about her. She has eight albums under her own name, which blend fusion and jazz and R&B and even classical into a style that's all her own. She has a band which has performed at all kinds of major jazz festivals, from the Playboy Jazz Festival to the Long Beach Jazz Festival. And she's even won the award from Jazz Is Magazine for the best harpist of the year. So without further ado, let me introduce you to a wonderful musician, a wonderful person, and the perfect harpist for this new album of mine, Music for Guitar and Orchestra. Here's Laurie Andrews. Well, Laurie... I've been really trying hard to figure out when we played together in L.A. I know it was in the 1980s. Maybe you remember, maybe you don't. But I remember because it's not very often that you're doing uh, what I think was a wedding and this brilliant jazz harpist shows up and there's never a jazz harpist on a gig and she totally is holding her own with everything that's going on with this stellar group of musicians. Do you remember that? You know, I I remember that we met. I arrived in L.A. from Philly in 86. So it was probably, you know, in the late 80s. Oh, yeah, it was uh, definitely in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but we didn't we didn't actually get a chance to play together. We just you were you were on another section of the wedding. Is that correct? No, no, we played together. If I'm remembering right, this might have been a gig for a guy named Keith Edwards. I don't know if you ever worked with. him. Oh, I remember. Keith. Yeah. Yes, of course. Keith had cool gigs, and it would have been really close to 86, 87, 88. It would have made sense that you would have been on one of his gigs. I remember when I first moved to L.A., people said, for really great musicians on a gig, you want to play Keith Edwards' gig. So I immediately went to his house and 
played a solo guitar version of All the Things You Are, which was my most impressive thing at that point. <laughs> and he, he immediately started putting me on gigs. And the very first gig I did was a duo gig with Bob Shepard. I had no sure. idea how great Bob Shepard was and how lucky I was oh, yeah. to be on a gig with him. But that's where it started. So it would make sense that it would be a Keith Edwards gig. Yeah, and you know what? It was a Keith Edwards gig where I played with Bob Shepard yeah, too. Yeah, he, yeah he's sense. still he's still at it. Oh gosh, he's still yeah, booking music. Uh, he actually put me on um, Oprah's fiftieth birthday party. So yeah, he does have the cool events. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I just remember. Uh, I think this was at the Bel Air Hotel. I have a really good memory of this, but I think it's because it was um, a very unusual gig to me. Not only was there a jazz harpist there. But you, you were not playing like any harpist I'd ever worked with before. The sessions I always did were with harpists who read the music, they played, they knew how to do what you're supposed to do, but you <laughs> were playing the place of a piano, the keyboards, and I were, it was effortlessly, at least that's how it appeared to me. So now oh. I know where we first met. Well, thank you for remembering oh, yeah. that. My, my motto actually is um, harps not just for breakfast anymore. <laughs> yeah. Because I think it's important for harpists to know that, that you don't have to read the notes on the page and you can step out and, you know, and really feel the music. Because once you leave that, that page, you, can, you, it, you become a different person. It doesn't happen overnight. So because most harpists are trained classically, you know, you just work out these passages and work out these passages. But so it will not come overnight for you to, you know, step away and find and feel like you have something to say. But when you get there, it's just the greatest feeling. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah thank you for saying that. That means a of, lot. Of course. I, I know from all the interaction that I've had the past two years with quote unquote classical musicians, which are not musicians I typically interact with, at least these 40-odd years, and mm -hmm. uh, I have seen a consistent trait, which is that they will play, and by the way, wrong or right, they will play exactly what's <laughs> on the page, religiously what's on the page. And, you know... You, were, you nailed this. <laughs> it's interesting, because then, when you talk to them a little bit more... They so value exactly what you were just talking about, the opportunities where somebody says, oh, like it might be a church gig or something. Mm -hmm. And their instruction is, there's no music for you, but we're in the key of D and just play what you think would be nice, you know? And yeah, for exactly. them, that's a freedom. It's, it's a little scary at first, I bet. But it's because it's so foreign to what they usually do and what they've been trained to do. Right. But of course, I learned that lesson uh, about how accurate they're going to be the hard way, which we did a couple um, rehearsals with orchestras before this music was recorded. You know, we used some local community orchestras, which were in many cases made up a good amount of pros, but mm -hmm. um, they weren't the custom pick people we picked for the, the recording were just the right people. But anyway, I remember I was still getting some of the mistakes out of the music. And I remember some beautiful moments, uh, like one in one place where there was this major seven chord where the violas, I guess I had forgotten an accidental or something. There was a reason I guarantee it. And they just played <laughs> perfectly a flat nine. Because that was what was in the music that I had written. So that's what they were right. going to play. 
At first, I wondered why they were doing that because, you know, when you or I get something like that where there might be a wrong note, we typically just go ahead and we fix it. And we may not even tell them about it. We just we just fix it. And right. and nobody, you know, because nobody wants to have it pointed out that you've made a they've made a mistake. And right. That you're exactly. It. So. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I guess the way we got started on this album of mine was I sent you uh, a harp part for the stars, the snow, the fire, because I was unsure as to whether or not what I had written was all that playable. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, I wasn't sure if the way I notated it was right. really the way that it should be notated, the way a harpist would want to see it. And you were, without any expectation, I might add, um, you had no expectation and you put your time into it and you really gave me extremely musical feedback, not only on what might be hard to play or whether something might be tough to play, but also the notation and how I could more clearly express right. what it was that I was trying to get across with the harp part. Oh, well, thank you. First of all, I, the, part of the reason I, I you know, I, I wanted to do that was that, number one, I totally respect you and what you're doing, and I've been a fan forever, and I was just, I couldn't believe that you were asking me, so I was I was thrilled to do that. And, and secondly, you know, I've been in so many studio sessions where they put music in front of the harpist that isn't playable. And I, I give it to the composer. Here's here's like a really good example as to why that could happen. I have a degree in both music education and in, in harp and piano performance. When I was studying education, the purpose of a music education degree, probably to be a music teacher, you have to play every instrument in the orchestra so that if you're conducting one day and right. all of a sudden the French horns are playing a flat nine when they shouldn't shouldn't be playing <laughs> yeah. a flat nine, you're able to tell them what to play and the fingering yes, for it. Right. So I was taught every instrument and played every instrument in the orchestra except the harp. Uh. Yeah. So none of the education majors knew anything about the seven pedals on the harp and how they work for sharps and flats. (laughs) Yeah. So I actually I I get it. I'm so used to it now because now on the fly, you know, I I can just kind of figure it out. But I, I always try to ask for the music ahead of time. Or when I first got to L.A. and I was doing sessions, I would panic before I went because I didn't know if the composer was aware of the limitations of this instrument. You know, I have I have seven pedals. They each move in three different ways. They can go up in the uh, they they mm. lock up, they right. lock in the middle, and they lock down. And each one represents a different note of the scale. So if my C is in the C sharp position, I don't have any C naturals on the harp. Oh, yeah. Now, I can go to my B and make it a B sharp, which becomes a C natural. So if they wanted me to play a C and a C sharp, I have to think that out. And that's also two pedal changes. And I only have two feet. So hopefully the... (laughs) So, you know, there's there's certain things, there's very much limitations on this instrument. Well, I'm glad you're talking about this because it's one of the things I wanted to get into. Yeah, most people don't understand that a harp is basically like a piano, but exactly. it's, it, it's they don't realize it's like a piano, but 
but it's a piano with no black keys. Exactly. And so if you want any black keys, you're going to have to use the pedals. And you have to keep in mind that even the best players need some time to make those pedal changes and for those pedals to take effect. Right. And uh, I'm not quite sure how, on my album, the things that you played for the music for guitar and orchestra, I soloed everything that you played because I wanted to hear everything that was going on. That, that was part of my job mixing. But there were things that were happening sometimes where I was just like, I have no idea how she's doing that. How is that what? happening? There was a bent note, and I think I mentioned it to you on the Grace of Summer Light that occurs during the string soli. And there was a place where you literally made a note. I would call it a bent note on the guitar. You obviously did it with a pedal. Right. But that was beyond, to me, what we're talking about with pedals. That's taking the pedal and actually doing something that is a creative use and something that most harpists I don't think would be able to do. You incorporated it so naturally and so easily in your comping behind the strings that uh, it was just a glorious moment to me. Oh, well, thank you. You know, there was a time when I was switching from, you know, I was just getting into jazz from classical. I, when it, when I graduated, I went to Temple University in Philly. When I graduated... Oh, in Philadelphia, I, right? Yeah, in Philly. Mm-hmm. When I, um, I graduated Temple, I got a call, like, just a, a month out of college to come down to it, because I'm in Philly now. I live in Philly, from Philly. I got a call to play at Caesars in Atlantic City. And oh, sure. when I got down there, I realized... Well, it didn't take me long. I'm playing Claire de Lune and and Reverie and you know Bach mm-hmm. and all this stuff, but they they were giving me big big chips to play the pop music of the day, and oh. so it didn't take me. So what happened was there were two things that came out of that gig. I was there for six years at Caesars in the Palm mm-hmm. Court restaurant. Wow. Yeah, wow. I had a great gig from that one gig. Oh my gosh, I had such. So I realized that classical was my training, but my love was funk and groove. So mm-hmm. there's two things I'm kind of noted for for as a harpist. One of them is I slap the bass to get rhythm. So basically, mm-hmm. like I, I would play on one on my left hand, make it, let's say an octave or a tenth, play on one, slap on two, slap the strings, play on three and slap the strings on four. So it's very percussive. And then it became really fun to play a solo harp gig. And the other thing I realized is if you just touch that pedal, just down and up real quick without locking it in, you have this blues thing that's just so cool. Oh, yeah. And like I said, there are a lot of limitations. Like, for instance, you know, you're watching a keyboard player do all these chromatics. Chromatics are tough. That's major pedal work. Um, but the bending of the notes and, and playing in fourths also really works. So I am limited. You know, I, I, I'm kind of using the instrument, wh- what I can get out of it as a jazz instrument. And, you know, it's, it's kind of different. So Well, that other thing you touched upon is really important. And that's the old, whole issue of feel. Mm-hmm. We gave all of the um, musicians, the orchestral musicians, not only the music, but also detailed music minus one demos of all of my music using the virtual instruments. We gave that to all of the orchestral musicians uh, a month before, and all the Boeing too. 
we really wanted to be prepared and have things go well. And we used the word feel when we were trying to explain to them uh, some of the things we wanted. And a lot of the players knew exactly what we were talking about. But there were other players who were like, what is this feel thing you're talking about? And this was really important to me and for this music because obviously I wanted you on this because I knew you were a great player, but you also had really great feel. And that is so important in a lot of this music as opposed to a classical harpist who would play all the notes correctly and play well. But for example, on the grace of summer light, you're playing with a drummer and you have to adapt to how the drummer is feeling the groove. You know, it's, it's uh, all of those R and B funk straight ahead, uh, contemporary jazz types of music all Mm -hmm. have specific types of feel and that was potentially more important than I even realized until I was doing the mixing because it was at that point when I was bringing in Chad Wackerman's drums for The Stars, The Snow, The Fire and Dave Weckl was adding his drums for The Grace of Summer Light. The orchestra, as good as they were, as close as they played to the click track, they were not wandering around it. You know, they were mm-hmm. playing to it. But they're still like an orchestra, and they're breathing, and they're alive, and their phrasing is more fluid than a jazz band, so they're not nailing it like a jazz group might. Well, again, having studied classical music and being really written to the note and not really, classical's not a groove, it's it's not a, it's not a, you know, a syncopation thing, usually, I mean, you know, I mean, in a a feel kind of way, I had to learn really early, and it was difficult for me, when I came to to um, LA, I came as a jazz harpist. I was stud- I was playing jazz for a couple years uh, back in Atlantic City at Caesars before I, I moved out. When I got called for a session, my job and the way that I hear and feel music was to lock with the drummer. Oh, I see. And I got called out for it all the time because let's say on one I'm supposed to be playing a beautiful just a, like a just a chord with the strings. Mm-hmm. The strings yeah. don't speak on one even no. when the drums do. Exactly. So they would always say harp you're early. And uh, in my mind, I was right on the money because you were I'm, right I on the money. Of course, con- well, I considered myself a rhythm section player, so I ha- my role changes depending on the gig. But put yep, me with drums yep. and bass, and that's when I'm the happiest because yeah, I love yeah. to just be funky and groovy, and you know, I, I want to be in the pocket. Yeah. But when I'm yeah. with a string section, it doesn't. It's the, the those instruments don't quite speak right on the click and it's frustrating for me and i'm wondering now with recording all of your harp parts for this album were recorded after Mm -hmm. the orchestra and i sent you what amounted to rough mixes they were put together but they were not near finished how did it feel for you in this context when you were playing for example with the strings and we can get more into this because you, you functioned in a number of different ways in my music on this album. Sometimes you were playing glissandos and glisses, the thing we really associate with the beautiful sound of the harp. Mm-hmm. You were also doubling strings at different times. Sometimes you were playing with the celeste. And then sometimes you were really functioning more like a pianist and you were the foil for what I was doing on the guitar. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering... 
on those times when you are functioning as somebody playing with the strings, for example, on Love Colored Soul, you were playing, even though you the strings were mm-hmm. dividing up this arpeggiated line, you were playing all of it. How did that feel? And I guess I'm wondering where on a scale of zero being very, very loose and 10 being very tight right. uh, in the things you've encountered, how far did it go one way or the other in this music? Well, the thing is, you know, it's really funny because the pocket is the pocket, right? I right. mean, here's the pocket. But when you had me playing with strings, I was very aware that I was then a string player and not a rhythm section player. I see. But you wrote the funkiest grooves and the coolest <laughs> grooves when I was playing with you and drums and, you know, and Patitucci. And I was like, oh, my God, this was like so me. So I really <laughs> did have to put many a, a couple different hats on rhythmically. Yes, Because sure. it has to blend. I can't just stick to my guns and say, no, the violins mm-hmm. are are not correct mm-hmm. they're not in the pocket here's the pocket it's that's not my my job at that point my job is to the harp is great at pulling people together with an arpeggio or especially a gliss it just pulls everybody and that's exactly how you were functioning in this song love colored soul right you were the glue and in fact the way i mixed it was not so much to make it so that people were aware that the harp was there. It was more like when I muted you, you went, oh, what no, happened? what yeah. happened? <laughs> That's right, yeah. And then, obviously, there were other places where you're the star, and if only for a moment, yeah. and uh, particularly those glisses that are so beautiful. That, well, it's so interesting to me that you had to kind of segue into that whole issue of how the harp functions in right. this music, I'm curious also what, if anything, were the elements that you found most difficult, that were the most challenging, were they specifically things with the writing or were there ever specifically feel challenges? It was mostly the feel elements, you know, and I want to be really clear. I'm, I don't want, I'm not pegging string players as, as players who play not in the pocket. It's oh, the right. nature no, of their instrument. What they bring to the yes. table is so exquisite yeah. in a different way with rhythm. They're not necessarily rhythm section players. So, you know, and their instrument is very different. So I'm, I'm not trying to nail anyone, but oh, I, no, would, there I were, know what you're saying. Right. But there were times where I would have to pull, you know, play a little bit back in order to catch a string line on, right. on, on like, let's say color love mm-hmm. uh, in order to catch a string line and then do a gliss and all of a sudden now we're, I'm in the pocket with the rhythm section so it was an immediate switch wow. that you know I just feel anyway because as soon as I, I hear no strings <laughs> I go yeah, with the drums yeah. well that's so. interesting that's very interesting to hear about that not only were you performing different functions but sometimes one function had to seamlessly blend into a whole nother function right. that that's tricky without any break. But no, I know exactly what you mean about the strings. I remember doing a session probably in the 80s when I lived in L.A., yeah. just me and I guess 12 string players. And uh, it was tricky. This was with a click, and it was to time because it was a commercial, so everything was timed. Mm-hmm. And the first take, I, I, I was like, what is going on mm-hmm. here? I was playing to that click, and I was trying to hold the whole band together, all those string players. And it was like trying to drag a very resistant 
big dog behind me. Right. And finally, I realized I'm not going to win this battle. Right. I'm going to have to go with them. And their interpretation of the click was pretty loose. Now, this orchestra on my album, they really played closely to the no, click. No, they did a and, great job. It was a much yeah, easier they, they much really easier did. session for me on, on, yeah. with this particular orchestra. Yeah. Right, right. Well, this this group of string players in this recording session back in L.A., they were pretty much treating the click pretty much like it was a suggestion. (laughs) In other words, if there were 24 beats, they were going to end up in the same place as if they were playing right to the click. But how they arrived there right. was not going to be the same way that a rhythm section, a jazz well, or a you pop gotta, rhythm section would that's do That's so funny that you said that because you have to figure. They start when they hear the click, but that's not when the full sound of their note comes through. They, that's exactly so right. So it's, 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 it feels like it's a little bit delayed. Now, hey, in a jazz way, I love that we all, you know, when we all just kind of hold back a little bit and, you know, just kind of step behind and kind of let, but this is a whole different thing. Oh, yeah. It's the nature <laughs> of their instrument. They are playing on the click. It's just not sounding there for a second. So, but when a drum hits, that's, Oh yeah, no, you know. There's it. no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, I I say colored love. I meant colored soul. I, I, yeah. Oh yeah. I no, no. To... I know you meant yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting. You know, because with Dave Weckel, who plays drums on Grace's Summer Light, he's very aware of the grid, the rhythmic grid in Pro Tools, where you can literally see exactly where yeah. the where the rhythm is. And one of the things that was interesting. Uh, and this was the same with Chad, who played on The Stars, The Snow, The Fire. It's a similar thing for both of them, where they were dealing with an orchestra that was relatively tight. To amongst the themselves. <laughs> yes, amongst themselves, right. <laughs> but the two of them, you know, Chad had had a lot of experience playing with orchestras. He, he recorded a bunch of Zappa's music with an orchestra. Mm-hmm. He played with James Taylor with an orchestra. Mm-hmm. So he had a lot of experience doing it. Dave, I'm sure he's had, with all the things he's done, he's had experience with that too. But he was more attuned to where the grid yeah. was and where things should be. And so it was a balancing act for the two of them to play in the pocket, yeah. create a strong groove, but at the same time sound like they were really with the orchestra. When you came in, because of your emphasis and sensitivity to to the groove and what the feel is like, you glued it together. And you sometimes, whether people can tell it or not, that is, which is not necessarily the point, that is the case where if we were to mute the harp again, you would notice that something didn't feel quite as right and not quite as in the pocket. I, I can so, officially... Re- re- I can officially retire now. That is the nicest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, it's the <laughs> Thank truth. Thank you. It, you know, it never occurred to me that they have an even bigger issue because the people who are relying on the rhythm section for pocket, where do they come in in all of this? Yeah, See, yeah. I, can, I can, the harp, I can arpeggiate to the point where I start on the click 
and and then end where the first violin <laughs> right. comes in. Yeah, yeah. And you it know, works. so I I can actually you know I can roll like that, but you can't on on a kick drum or or, or, or a snare. No, you know, no, it's, it's it's or right a cymbal. There. It's that's it. Yeah. So yeah, I never even thought of that. They have even bigger issues than I do when we're working with strings. But I was told so many times in the beginning because you were saying you had the same experience when you played with strings mm-hmm. way way back. They called me out. Their their basic line was harp. You're ahead. And I'm thinking, how can I be ahead? So, of course, the second time I played it right on the click. Harp, you're ahead. <laughs> Even more. It took me a while to figure it out. I'm not yeah. supposed to play with the click. Yeah. I'm supposed to blend with the strings in this particular passage. Yes, that passage. And we're, talk, we're splitting hairs here. We're, we all know we're splitting hairs. We're not – but, you know, the nature of some instruments are, are unusual, you know. It's, it's – you know, but – And when you're functioning with those instruments – you're functioning as somebody who is supposed to blend with an instrument whose attack, by definition, is going to be later than yours. And we may be talking milliseconds, but it matters. And, um, you know, a rhythm section player is probably more equipped to do that because at least you and I can adapt. They really can't necessarily adapt. No, they're not really. I mean, no, I don't think they can do it in their heart either, because that's what made them so amazingly great musicians is that their pocket is solid and they play their butts off. And it's just the right thing at the right time. Well, well, I was thinking, too, you know, as you were saying that I was reminded as I was doing two two different tunes on your CD, there were times where I was glissing and then I was supposed to end on one. And there were times where my one locked with a drum and there were times where my one was just a little late to come up with the violins because they came in at that moment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I really have to know what's coming up to know where where I fit in. Ah, well, I noticed there's a moment when it comes out of the acoustic guitar solo in The Grace of Summer Light, and it hits the downbeat of the beginning of what's going to be the beginning of a long string solo section, which, by the way, was originally an electric distortion guitar solo. <laughs> that I transcribed. It's an improvised solo, and I transcribed it for the strings. And then, of course, made changes to make sure that the strings could play it. There were some things when you improvise, as I'm sure you know, you know, later on you go, I can't play that, it's too hard. Um, And so writing these things for the strings, I was fortunate enough to have some people around me who had a lot of experience with orchestral instruments and working with them. And one of them told me, you know, you can have them do what you've written there, you know, for those three beats or how many bars it is. But he said, you know, it'll take an extra 10 minutes in the recording studio for them to get that right. Or you could do this with the same effect and they'll just zip right through it. Wow. And so those are the kinds of changes that I made right. to make sure that we weren't going to get hung up, you know, on some guitar uh, passage that I was going to insist the strings play exactly the same. But anyway, when that downbeat happens, right at that transition between the guitar solo and the downbeat of the string solo section, which mm-hmm. is where your comping comes in, right. mm-hmm. both John Patitucci, the bass, and Dave Weckl, the drums, they both nailed it right on the downbeat, right where it ought to be. But the strings did not nail it. 
Right. I felt like I was supposed to be a rhythm player at that point. Right. Yeah, I guess you were. I wasn't feeling yeah, a strong right group. Right. Right. Well, you know what? It's really interesting. And I, I, ag- I agree with you. Never thought about it that John Patitucci would go, you know, after the drums because he could come in and he has the same problem I do. We're stringed instruments. Do we go with the strings on one or do we go? So, you know, and you needed a pocket there. So that was a perfect call. I, I, you're, you're very good at this. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. But what I did was, because for yep. a while I lived with it, and I did that thing that we all do, I'm sure you've done it on your own albums, where you go, well, it's not exactly right, but it's human. Right. It's, it's, well, it's you know, it's, supposed to sound that way. But eventually I, I had to deal with it. Yeah. And yeah. I I took the entire strings, all of the strings, all 44 of them. Yeah. We had 22, but we we doubled them. Uh, mm-hmm. So anyway, I took all of them and I moved them forward, whatever yeah. needed to be done there. And now it feels very natural. I hear you. I, I, by the way, I tried it the other way yeah. where I said, well, there's only one rhythm section. Why don't I just have them come a little later? And nope, it just didn't feel right for some reason. It just sounded like everyone yeah. was wrong. But when I let the drums and the bass and you be where you were supposed to be, and then adjusted the orchestra a little bit, then it felt that's, that's right. That's interesting. And then it was there. Yeah, I would have done the same thing. Because, you know, it, it, it always did. It, it, it caused a little anxiety in my stomach when I went to sessions for that reason. And, you know, I just knew that I had to, my, the whole time I was driving, you know, to a session, I was just saying, now just breathe, just breathe. Because I know <laughs> I'm going to have to do everything a little bit, just a tiny bit later than I would, that I would have felt it. Had I been with, you know, with with the, just the rhythm section, so. Yeah, and I, I imagine that, especially these days, because you're your own band leader um, and you, you've got eight albums to your own name, um, I would imagine that you play the majority of your time with uh, a jazz band, a jazz rhythm section that are all about pocket and feel. And so, you know, having to play where the time is treated differently would be an adjustment that could make you nervous. I don't play classical at all anymore. It's it's just not something I devoted time to because I love the jazz. I just I I you know give me give me you know jazz you know piano guitar a rhythm section. I just want to be with a rhythm section. So that's where I focus my my time and energy. You know I feel like as far as a classical harpist goes, yes, I played. I loved what I did the whole time I was you know going through college and when I start I started at six with classical piano and I loved classical music. The minute I turned to anything rhythmic, that was me. And now these other classical harpists have surpassed me by, you know, heavens. And uh, but I just I want to do this. This is what I want to be rhythmic. I want to have fun with my band. Oh, yeah. And following that instinct is so important. When I get an opportunity to do a concert at a college, I usually do a workshop. And I talk to them as much about that element as I do about the guitar, because to me, finding that place where what you love and what other people are going to at least like is a big, big accomplishment. And it seems to me you found that very early in your musical life and you recognized it 
And then you embraced it. Yeah, it's it's been, you know, I mean, you certainly, you know, many, many, many years later and many, many sessions later, I have a good feel for it. But, you know, it's it's not only that, but it's also, you know, if I don't have the music ahead of time, was the the composer aware of that you know, of the pedals and, and how we can get stuck? Not only, you know, I meant to bring this up uh, earlier when we were talking about the pedals. Not only am I moving the pedals for sharps and flats, but there's a possibility that you could get a slight noise. So I'm trying to be aware of moving a moving part while being recorded that try to be as quiet as possible so I always I always said tap dance was would be a great re- requisite to playing the harp dance <laughs> yeah, tap dance true. lessons that's a really interesting point because we're talking about the pedals like they're buttons but they're not they're physical large physical pieces of equipment right that are going to invariably make some noise. I imagine you have to do a certain amount of maintenance with them just to keep them smooth and quiet. You do. Uh, what, what, you know, so you picture, so it's like a, it's like a little, a grid of three little steps that this pedal locks into each one. But the, you know, we're talking about one pedal. If I'm, if I'm in the middle of making a G flat, a G natural, Mm-hmm. I could potentially hit that G just before it's locked in and you get a buzz. Oh, so that's I a see. different thing. Yeah. So you're trying not to buzz. You're trying not to hear. The The, the pedals mm. have felts. Yeah, the pedal yeah, itself. But it, it does have felts. But if you're moving fast you're going to, it's going to create a noise. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, the harp is very, I'll tell you a cute, funny story. We had, um, un- unfortunately, our, our uh, main harp technician who lived in LA, he passed away quite a few years ago. And he was the funniest guy, Dale Barco. He was written up full page in the LA Times about being a harp technologist or tech, uh, technical guy. He he did regulations. He built harps. He, he twist, he, he worked on soundboards. He pulled them apart. You know, he was our guy. Well, he was quoted in the LA Times, and I think it's because of what we're talking about. Um, he basically said, the harp is an archaic piece of crap, really. <laughs> and I just had to laugh because all I kept thinking of is all of the things that could go wrong <laughs> <laughs> just by playing the harp. Just you by know? playing. And then, yeah. and then breaking strings. That, that goes without saying. Guitar I mean, it's too. just all the things that could go wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just laughed at him because he was just that kind of guy, you know. And he knew because he, knew. he worked with him day in and day out. Totally. And yeah, it's it's got to be... I, I, only thing I can equate it to is acoustic guitar uh, finger noises right. and squeaking. The complexities of uh, what happens when you play the guitar, sometimes there's no way around it. There were moments on this record where I just went, well, if I try to mute that moment out, it doesn't sound yeah. normal or it, natural. It's not real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I not happen real. To, I happen to love finger noise on the guitar. Um, there's not... You know, I, I really love that. Um, some people don't care for it. I absolutely do love it because it's human. Yeah, yeah that's right. The clunk it's on a pedal on a harp like. is just wrong. Yeah. <laughs> or the buzz there, in there between, be a a, you know, it's yeah. just it's just wrong, you know. But I really do because, and I think maybe it's be, because I play the harp that I can appreciate other people's um, a sensitivity to their instruments like finger noise mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. or a growl on a bass string, you know. Yeah, I just oh, yeah, love yeah. that. There's nothing to clean up for me you know it's 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 interesting because i've spent a lot of time with virtual instruments all of this music was originally written with just virtual instruments except my guitar right and so they act of course well they never complain for one thing but they can also do things that you can't really do on real instruments 
But Mm -hmm. one of the things you notice, especially when you've lived with those instruments, those virtual instruments for a year or so, and then suddenly they're replaced by the real instruments, and suddenly you're hearing all kinds of other stuff. But one of the things you realize is the fact that those virtual instruments have no human noise, none of the natural sounds that real instruments have. It's one of the reasons virtual instruments just don't really do it. If you were to use a virtual nylon string guitar, you might play it perfectly, Mm -hmm. but there'd be no noise or Mm -hmm. sounds between the notes, which is a big part of what makes a nylon string guitar have the magic and sound like a person. And you can feel the the soul of it when you have a player actually playing it. Now, you know, there was a place... um, and the stars, the snow, the fire near the beginning of the song was a very delicate section that was just you and me and John Patitucci on acoustic bass. I love that part. Oh, first of all, that is my favorite song. You played Oh, well, that there. part gives me chills every time I listen to it because I know who the players are and it's just beautiful. And your, your playing is so clean. And it's, oh, it's just, I love that part. I, it's a great tune. I remember... Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. I, I, I was, it was one of those places where the three of us, if we'd been in the same room, we probably wouldn't have really thought about it too mm-hmm. much. We would have just played together. We would have all been together. But we were all in three different environments at three different times. And frankly, that was an area that kind of worried me. Again, because of your experience really being at the heart a jazz player, the same as Patitucci and me, we all we all knew how to just interpret the rhythm of that. And I th- remember Patitucci telling me, I was concerned about that because for the same reason I just said, but once I heard what you guys had done, then I knew exactly oh, what to play. Oh, that's so nice, yeah. And I think that's what you hope for. yeah. And with things like that and sections of music like that, because it's supposed to sound like right. we're breathing Or like together. we were in the same room recording. <laughs> yes, right. You know, right. yeah. I have another question for you that doesn't have anything yeah. really specifically to do with the music on my album. But I'm curious, in your own role, as in your own band as the band leader, are you most of the time functioning pretty much the way a, a contemporary jazz pianist would? Yes. Um, one of the things that I do that was I was not really is not very harpy is I, I play more block chords because I want to be rhythmic. Harpists are used to arpeggiating their chords. So they start at the bottom and roll to the top. I play all the notes at the same time because I just here's where the pocket is. So I am always thinking, you know, I'm, I'm like a comping piano player. That's the way I, I approach the band is I am the comping piano player. Now, you know, the, the pedals do hamper me from playing, you know, Bill Evans style, you know, or, or, or you know, Oscar Peterson. But I, get, I do what I can. But rhythm to me, as long as we're in the pocket and, and we're having a great time, it's all good. Yeah. Yeah. That's the bottom line. And that's what I noticed immediately. And, and I'd urge my listeners to go to YouTube and search out your videos there are so many incredible videos. I sent a few links before this project started up to my conductor, Jonathan Merrill, and my associate producer, Dan LaMaestra, and really a, a bunch of other musicians. I just wanted to have hear how great you sounded. And, uh, you know, oh my gosh, they all thank noticed. You. 
Sure. They all noticed the same thing I did. That's what they heard mm. immediately. Oh, man, this is like in the pocket. She really mm. owns this. This is not somebody playing jazz harp and just functioning. You're right in the center of it. Oh, thank and, you. And that's that pocket thing and that groove thing. And so in your own band, you know, I know you're obviously not doubling strings and playing all that many of those Mm -hmm. kinds of parts, but are you using some of the techniques and effects that we associate with the harp, like five octave glissandos and things like that? Much (laughs) less. Yeah. Unless it's called for. I, I, gosh, I'm even thinking, do I even end a song with a glissade? We don't really do those kind of songs. Like, you know, you're not going to, let's just, let's just say take five. You're not going to end take five with a gliss. It's just, it's, it's different. You know, we end with buttons and pops and, you know, and, and groovy stuff, you know? So no, I, I very rarely gliss, very rarely. Um, and I, I try to teach harpists that because we can, as a harpist, we can get in the habit of glissing when we think we have nothing to say. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's, and that's not the case when you're playing jazz. You know, you you have everything you say is coming from your heart. So say it, you yeah, know, put it yeah, out there. It's it's message. not easy. The transition is not easy. I, I, I think what started for me, it wasn't necessarily the it wasn't about the notes as to why I, I went into jazz. It was about the rhythm and feel. I yeah. had that naturally. Yeah. I loved it. And I figured out the rest. And it took years. I wonder how much of that had to do with growing up in Philadelphia and just being surrounded by some of the greatest R&B and funk and just groove-oriented music in the country, you know, at least at that time. I couldn't agree more, but at the time, I didn't even know it because I was studying all classical and then I I left Philly. And I look back and I think, oh my gosh, why didn't I pay more attention to theory? <laughs> because I didn't think I was going to need it. I'd be an orchestra harpist, mm, you know. Yeah, sure. Why didn't I, Why didn't I play with Grover Washington when he was playing? <laughs> you know, why didn't I go yeah, be you know, all yeah. these great players? Yeah, you know, sure. and I, I missed that whole part because I didn't know what my destiny was going to be. And mm, and in I reality, see. you know, I was playing when I was playing in Atlantic City. I always said in my life. A lot of the choices that I've made were not made by me, but for me. Um, in Atlantic City, uh, I played in five years in the Palm Court. And then they called me into, my, my boss was the uh, entertainment office, even though I played in the evenings long after they were gone. Um, he called me in the office and he said, unfortunately, we're going to be closing the Palm Court. I was wondering if you if you would um, you know, consider playing a little, like a little jazz duo of harp and sax in the lounge. And I said to him, I said, gosh, that sounds really great. And I walked out the door and I heard the door, you know, close behind me and I'm walking down this rather dark hallway. And I actually said to myself, how in the hell do you play jazz on the harp? (laughs) And I thought, you know, I'm going to have to figure this out. So um, I I picked a, um, a, a cute, little um uh, oh my gosh she was like five feet tall a sax player who played sax flute she played the barry it was practically down to her ankles and we rehearsed and we rehearsed and i got it i got it because i I had the rhythm i wasn't concerned about grooving i was concerned about that that's something you can't decide to study you you can't really teach that but you can't just learn it in two weeks that's right 
So I knew I had that going for me. So what now? How do I play the chords? How do I comp for her? The slapping of the bass came in handy because now we're, you know, it's, it's I'm the only, I'm the bass player, the drummer, and the piano player for this, wow, you know, right. sax player. And so I remember uh, one night we were practicing, we were going to do Spain by Chick Corea. Sure. So, you know, the lick, dun, dun, da, da, da. well, <laughs> I'm playing, she's gone. She left, she left it, you know, nine o'clock at night and I'm working on this and working on this lick and working on it. All of a sudden there's a knock on my door. And it's a policeman. He said, do you realize it's one o'clock in the morning? And my first thought was, oh, my gosh, I've made it. I'm a harpist that just got nailed for for practicing Spain at one o'clock in the morning. Does it get any? Lock me up, officer. Lock me up. (laughs) I'm the real thing. But. it's way before uh, the the time of selfies. Yeah, but. yeah. Could, could you just come over with the harp with me? <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah, come on in. You know, Let's get a picture quick. It's kind of interesting. Quick. So, you know, but I do remember we were working in Atlantic. We were playing. So the first night we're playing and I don't know, you know, we're maybe playing Black Orpheus or something. Mm-hmm. And she just stops playing. Wow. And I kind of mouth at her. I'm going, Susan, what are you doing? <laughs> and she leans over and she goes, Time for your solo. <laughs> and that's how I learned to solo. That's so, the way you do you know, it. it was, and I loved it. Yeah. It oh, didn't happen overnight. It really didn't. But, um, you know, it's just, it's it's my passion. So, And you took that passion and that strong sense of rhythm and time that you had. And really, that's the thing that'll drive anything. And then you must have gone about figuring out how to improvise how did you do it how did you learn to play over changes did you study it or were you able to just use your ear I mean you had a developed ear I imagine so were you able to just kind of suss it out by ear how to play over sets of chord changes as the harmony shifted I mean Spain is not a really hard song but you got to know how right. to play over changes to get through it. Right. How did you do that? Did you do it by ear or did you go have a method of study to 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 get it done? Oh great question. Everything I did I did by ear. And that's why I had I had regrets about not studying theory more when I was in college and had the opportunity. I just wasn't thinking along those lines. But I listened to a lot of Bill Evans and Bob James and, you know, and, and all the people that are on your CD. I just I love, you know, yeah, I just the best. I loved it. I, I, I listened a lot to piano because mm-hmm. <clears throat> that was the, the that was the instrument that came closest to what I was oh, yeah. supposed to yeah, do definitely. as far as. Yeah, as far as. you know. So I just I figured it out and I do I do have pretty good ears. Um, for for that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, the limitations on the harp and the chromatics, that's a bit tougher. And I had to figure out, well, how am I going to still make it hip without doing exactly what Bill Evans is doing here, which is unbelievable. Yeah. You know, so I had to, you know, made it for my instrument. It's just not technically possible, right? All those those chromatic runs at fast tempos. Now, I'm also wondering how... With the using of the pedals, going back into something we were talking about before, but I think my listeners would be interested in this, and they're hip enough to follow this. If you're in one key and you see, let's say, four bars ahead, you're going to be changing mm-hmm. to a new key, are you already anticipating that you're going to have to do something with the pedals and maybe even changing some pedals already? In other words, let's say you're in the key of C. Mm-hmm. You're going to modulate to a kind of a faraway key that, let's say, the key of E major. That's a pretty big mm-hmm. change. Um, let's say that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. Are you 
keeping the pedals all the way the same until the last moment? No. Or you, are you anticipating? You should have been a harpist, Ken. You got this nailed. You, <laughs> I've I thought see, about this. I've thought it. about how this must work. I'm looking ahead to see. Well, I'm looking ahead and I'm saying, okay, there's no F that I have to play in this particular passage in the key of C. So I'm going to put my F sharp down now. Now, C, C and G, I'm probably going to have to wait until the last minute you know, for the key of E. So I am, I'm preparing uh, measures before. Now here's where it gets complicated is if I'm playing a gliss in there because the gliss you're going to want in C. However, if I'm playing a gliss into E, those pedals have to be nailed right into that key. And I actually am playing the, in the key of E, even though we're in C from the transition from the last I measure see. of C I to see. the first measure of E. Right. I want that E because it, but by the time everyone comes in on one on the key of E, we're all going to be on the same page and they're going to know why right, I, I did that. <laughs> so it is, it's constantly thinking ahead. And is that second nature for you at this point? Or is it something that you have to think through first and plan for? I'm wondering if this is happening almost without you having any real cognizant thought or are you still having to really figure it all out mathematically and make sure that everything's going to be right? It's a little of both. It depends on the transition. Some are easier to make than others. Um, you know, but I, I am always thinking ahead. There's another thing I can do is I can think enharmonically. So oh, right. um, I, I could potentially, if there was, let's say like um, a repeated notes on the harp is difficult because this, the finger strikes the, the note and it's, and it's still ringing when you come back to strike it. So it causes a buzz. I see. So if I can make repeated notes out of two notes using enharmonics. So I have to think like that, you know, to, uh, that's, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, so I would so let's say repeated C's, I would make a B sharp, B right. sharp C, B sharp C, B sharp C, and I would just continue that way so that I at least that string has a chance to kind of dissipate before I re-strike it again. Right, right. I get it. We did that on Wichita Lineman. Yes, we did. Although we had the repeated right. notes were in octaves, so there would be a break between repeating notes. Because uh, it was, right. you know, an octave high, an octave low, an octave high. But for my listeners, I just want to explain an enharmonic note is a note that can be called the same exact note, but with two different names and therefore played two different places. So if you have a C natural and a B, which are a half step apart, if you make the B a sharp, it now is the same note as a C. So that, that's what enharmonic right. means, what, what we're talking about. So that's what you were doing in a situation right. like Wichita Lineman then, right? Was I that- did. And, and oh, yes, I did. And the other thing I did on Wichita is I actually, I did punch those notes to be very, very sure that my B sharp matched my C. Because as way, you're playing, yeah. I was going to say, I know you know this, but again, something for my listeners, what the harp is doing is doubling the Celeste. Right. So it wasn't just like you were out there on your own. I had to match match that as well. Yes, you had mm-hmm. to match the Celeste and blend right. with it. Both well. rhythmically and pitch. You know, pitch, yeah, pitch you know, too. my joke is they say a harpist spends 50% of the time tuning and 50% of the time playing out of tune. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like so a So I'm always aware, you know, it is kind of nice in the studio to be able to punch in because just naturally the harp starts to go out of tune after a long passage. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's not what, you know, it's it's again, 
an archaic piece of crap, really. Sorry, sorry for all the harpists <laughs> out there, but they probably already know that joke. <laughs> I sure um, they do. But it's it's I, I needed to make sure that that B sharp that was going to be also a C for me was going to be exactly in tune with that C. Mm, so right. I punched every time I had to use an enharmonic because right, right. as you're playing, you're not really sure what what might be just slipping just a little bit, and you are. Each one of my pe- each one of my strings, okay. So you have the you start with the seven pedals, three pedals on the left, four pedals on the right. Mm-hmm. So each of those pedals move in three different directions. Those pedals have rods that seven rods that go up through the column and come down the neck of the harp and work mechanisms in order to shorten and lengthen the string. So if you think of yeah, all yeah, that's what they're right. doing. They're changing the length of the string. Right. If you think of all of that that's happening. The possibility of something not being in tune is pretty darn good. So <laughs> yeah. I'm always aware that, you know, I, I just, I need to retune all the time. So it's a very physical instrument yeah. and you are plucking, which right. it's like that with a guitar. You know, if you're digging in, uh, you know, right. you're interrupting the static nature of the string in a way that is a little different than some instruments. Right. There's a, it's a percussive quality to it. So we think of the harp as a soft, sweet thing, and people don't realize that the player isn't all that soft and sweet necessarily. <laughs> they're very precise, and right. they're digging in, and especially in your case, because your rhythm is so strong, and you're, I don't, I don't want to use the word attack because that has connotations of hitting something. That's hardly what you're doing. It's very subtle and, and specific and very dynamic. Mm-hmm. But you, you really are trying to be precise and nail something. And I think you're more like a drummer or a pianist or a guitarist when they play something. They, with definition, they play it. Yeah, I, I do dig in. Yeah, you dig in. That's yeah, a good I'm not way to a light. It. I'm not a light player, and I I don't feel like the digging in is causing any kind of a tuning issue necessarily. The harp can take it, but the harp just in general, just being in a room, sitting in a room without playing it, <laughs> is a problem. So if that's a problem, <laughs> <laughs> just the humidity. And I am responsible for that. That's my responsibility to make sure that every note I play is in tune. And then your orchestra sounded amazing. Sometimes I've worked with orchestras that their tuning is a little questionable. And now I have to think, gosh, do I actually have to tune down? And I thought it that's probably what I need to do because I'm a team player. Not, not by a lot. I, I just want to blend. I'm supposed to blend. But it's my responsibility to make sure that that harp is always, you know, tuned properly to, to for the for the occasion yes well yeah yeah, that tuning issue with with my orchestra i noticed in the rehearsal and sometimes the first take they were still actually finding their center as far as tuning goes right plus playing with each other exactly they're trying to listen to each other and and to some degree you know you know they're wearing headphones they've got a click they're hearing temporary guitar parts temporary rhythm section parts so they weren't tuning to that. I, I mean, that wasn't what they were supposed to do. But they did have to listen very hard to each other. And being relatively new for myself to recording an orchestra and, and you know, recording them, I'd never experienced how mm-hmm. that process would work. So the rehearsal, maybe even the first take would go by, and I'd feel my stomach starting to get a little <laughs> upset, you know, because <laughs> I'm, I'm used to the tuning being perfect. And 
I would even say, because I had a microphone in the control room that went only to the conductor out in the in the, yep. in the recording room, he would translate what I was saying. He would say, Ken thinks things are going great, but he's a little worried about the intonation of the French horn. <laughs> but at it. one point, we had a break, and the conductor, Jonathan Merrill, said, got to understand, yeah. this is totally normal. Yeah. This is what they do for the first run mm-hmm. through or so of, of a song. They find that mm-hmm. center. Even though these people are handpicked, they've all played with each other in various configurations, this exact orchestra has never recorded right. before together. So they're just making sure they understand where yeah. it is mm-hmm. and they hear where everybody else is going. And, and I'm glad you, that went well for you and that it because it was an area I was certainly concerned about and being very picky about. Just trying not to be so picky about it that I took right. the life out of it. You know, you don't want to make people feel right. scared. Then you don't get their best work. Right, you're right. I wanted to end our conversation today with with um, pointing out a place in the record that I think would be interesting to hear you comment on it, if you like, where I actually had written a part out for you. In fact, it was that section we were talking about before in The Grace of Summer Light that had been an electric mm-hmm. distortion guitar solo and is now an extended string orchestra solo. So... Right there, that was a place, one place, where I had written out a comping part for you, and you played it, and you recorded it, but kind of in the 11th hour, after you'd recorded my part perfectly, I realized, I've got one of the greatest jazz harpists in the world here, and here's a place where I'm pretty sure she's got better ideas than (laughs) I do for how to comp behind this orchestra for these 64 or so bars. And so the story I wanted to tell my listeners is that before you actually recorded the the parts that you thought were these are the takes, you kind of did a warm-up part, a run-through. I don't even think you thought or knew you were being recorded, but you were being recorded. And mm-hmm. in fact, that was the version, that was the take that I used oh. because what you played was so soulful and so what I was looking for. It had all the elements that I thought were going to be necessary Mm -hmm. and, and exactly what I thought you'd hear better than me. But not only that, there was something that was just a jazz quality to it. The feeling that you had just played this for the first time, Mm -hmm. not only new to the listener, not only new to me, but new to you. And there's a magic to that and an excitement and a moment. There were so many moments in that right. comping part that you came up with. I really encourage listeners to find that section and listen to it. The harp's over on the left. It's not mixed super loud. It's part of the orchestra. <laughs> but you can certainly hear it if you uh, mm-hmm. focus on it. And um, you're there. And if you're focused on it, it's easy to find the harp and to hear all these wonderful moments that that occur. I hope you were okay that I picked that take um, that was the one that was the least thought out and, I guess, planned out. But I just thought it was the most musical and had the most buzz. I, I hope you were okay with that one. 
I'm absolutely fine with it. In fact, I'm flattered. And I do agree that um, sometimes, it, it, most times, it works out that your first take is the best take. Now, if there's something that, that like maybe just goes wrong, like a buzz or something that you need to fix and you're like, oh, darn, why did that happen? The second take is probably, you know, really, really good. After that, you start losing, you start getting too heady and you start think overthinking it. But the first time you're just reacting and that's when the best stuff comes out. Yeah, that's what I think I heard. And you're exactly right. Once you get into the third or fourth take, you're getting yeah. into above the neck stuff. Right. Uh, yes. The feeling uh-huh. isn't quite the same. The, the heart isn't quite as strong. For a great musician like you, there's always going to be heart. But it's not quite the same thing as when you play something off the cuff that's loose and relaxed and free and happy, <laughs> which is what I heard. I try to get myself when I'm playing a solo I really try to get it the first few times and then I'll go back and fix anything that is not quite as good as it could be I'll just punch in those two or three bars there's a Mm -hmm. bad note I'll just fix the one note because I want to keep that feeling it's imperative to me to always have that energy of the first second take something early on when it's fresh and new to me and 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 I, I use that word again, happy. You know, there's that sense of joy mm-hmm. when something really good is coming out and the rhythmic feel is right. And, and, and I, anyway, I just thought that was all there. And I wanted to mention that for my listeners to, to check out. Maybe I'll even insert it into the podcast right here oh, so you can hear great. it for yourself. appreciate your commitment to excellence on this record and your commitment to my music uh, that we recorded for this album. But I also really appreciate you sharing your expertise on this podcast. I think that there'll be a number of my listeners who are very interested in hearing about your contribution. And I hope that there are some classical harpists discover this podcast because I think that they would find some amazing information on how you play the harp in different ways, in rhythmic ways, especially contemporary jazz music um, and improvisational music in general. And and playing in ensembles, I think it would be really interesting and informative and helpful for harpists like that who have any interest in delving into that. Well, thank you for doing that. I, I really appreciate it. You know, I'm, I've been such a fan of yours for so many years. Well, I, I do want to let you know what a big fan I am of yours. You're playing your CDs. Oh, I, nice I'll tell you, hear. I absolutely Thanks, loved your solo CD. Um, was that Unbreakable Heart? Is it? Oh, no, that that's the, the, the Test of Time. Oh, the Test of Time. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, there were some solo pieces on some other albums, too. Oh, 
you know, I remember the days of wine and roses and imagine, oh my God, Europa, oh, one of my favorites. You, I love that CD. I loved hearing you unplugged. It was such a treat, but I got to say, the work you did on this CD with the orchestra is phenomenal. I can't even imagine all of this came from your head. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you saw it, you wrote it, you heard it, you produced it, you, 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 you know, and you did all the mastering and mixing. Oh my gosh. What? what? I, hey, I'm bowing. You can't see me, but I'm bowing. <laughs> You're nice to say all that. I appreciate that very much, Lori. means a lot to me coming from you. Believe it or not, and I, I don't say that it's this false modesty or however it might come off, but when it was all over and I finally got a little distance from it and I could let myself hear it again, you know, because <laughs> um, I never do. I'm terrible. I, I, I have to let weeks or months go by. And before yeah, I, I don't can, listen to mine either. I, it's, I'm too close to it. it and and yeah. ironically, you're probably in the same boat, especially for like a solo or something where you're really exposed. You just hear yeah, the it. things you might have done differently <laughs> <Always>. or <laughs> I missed that note or that phrasing. What was I thinking? And it's like, well, if you're going to pick it apart <laughs> and that's me, that's yourself. you know. <laughs> it's so, not fun, is it? But when I allowed myself to hear it and get some distance there was this yeah. sense of, oh my gosh, I did it. I, yeah. I can't believe it, I did it. You did. <laughs> and, and and I actually realized that I, I had taken a real leap of faith in more ways than one. And it, it had worked and it really had worked just the way I hoped it would work. And, and I just, I feel really lucky to have been able to work with so many great musicians and mm-hmm. so many people putting themselves into this music and um, not least of which was what you did for the music, Lori, and it, it, it made all the difference. Oh, I love this project. You you just rocked it. I'm so proud of you, and, and I'm so honored to be a part of it. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Lori. Great to hear. And uh, all of my fans, please go check out Lori's music. Oh, thank you, Ken. This is a, a harpist like none you've ever heard. <laughs> And you can go to her website and hear all kinds of things she's done. You can go to YouTube and and search for her name. You won't believe what you find. Thank you so much. (laughs) It's the truth. Thanks again for doing this, Lori. It was my pleasure. So that's my conversation with the great jazz harpist, Lori Andrews. You can learn much more about Lori's music and Lori herself at her website, www.jaz.com. H-A-R-P-R-E-C-O-R-D-S dot com. So, if you haven't picked up a copy yet of my latest album, Music for Guitar and Orchestra, you can get it at all the usual places, Amazon, iTunes. If you're a streamer, you can get it on Spotify and so forth. You can also get exclusively at my website a signed CD from me directly. I'll even lick the stamps if that will do the trick for you. (laughs) So anyway, I hope you'll check out the full album. It's a special album, and I appreciate you all tuning in one more time to my podcast. There'll be many more. See you on the next one. (laughs) 